firearms, failures, and the facts. I'll discuss the horrific Parkland, Florida shooting and join in the wider gun debate that ignited in its aftermath. I guarantee you my take on this issue will be unlike anything you'll find on mainstream media or elsewhere. That's up next. This is Reclaiming Reason with host Zach S. Lewis, a political and cultural commentary show done from the perspective of a radical individualist philosophy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the first show. As you heard, this is a cultural and political commentary show from the perspective of a radical individualist philosophy. Now, what does that mean, the radical individualist philosophy part? Well, I think it'll be better if I just show you what it means by diving right into the big controversy of the moment, and that is, of course, the horrific shooting at the Parkland, Florida High School on February 14th, 2018, Valentine's Day, and, of course, the gun debate that just sort of exploded in the aftermath of that shooting. So... While I mostly want to talk about that, I do want to give you guys an indication of where I stand politically, just so you'll kind of have a baseline to go off of. So obviously the title of this show is Reclaiming Reason, and my political views are based on a radical individualist philosophy. I would say a radical rational philosophy as well. So I guess I'll start by kind of giving you a sort of hint about what that means. Uh, in terms of my political philosophy, I think reason is the primary. That means I consider human beings to be rational creatures. Reason being the faculty that integrates the data provided by the senses into concepts. I can get into exactly what that means at a later show, if you're interested, but... I guess I'll talk about what I support concretely as a consequence of these philosophical premises. So if you want the essentials of my political views, I am an advocate of individual rights, particularly property rights, and free speech. And incidentally, I think those rights are what is most under assault today in America and elsewhere. Also, I am an advocate for capitalism. All of this puts me squarely outside the mainstream, I think. I should state emphatically now that I am not a conservative, in case anyone thinks conservatives are advocates of reason, capitalism, or individual rights. They certainly are not. I am not a progressive liberal, or a liberal in the modern sense. I'm not a libertarian, and I'm not an independent. I have no home in any political party, currently, and I also wouldn't call myself middle of the road because I advocate for principles that almost every political party in America right now explicitly is against. If I'm closest to anything, if you could put a label on it, I guess you could say classical liberalism. If you Google that term, classical liberalism, you'll find a whole wealth of information that you can go ahead and read, and it should give you a good explanation about what sort of, in general, my views are. Also, the title of this show, I'm calling it Reclaiming Reason, because I think the political dialogue today is too emotional. 
I think too many people base their opinions off of their emotions, especially with this gun issue. Yes, 17 people died in the Parkland shooting. Most of them were children, and that is horrific. It should make you emotional. But when we're talking about this issue and how to prevent future shootings, the last thing I think we want to do is base our solutions off of our emotions. Emotions will tell you how you feel about a particular event, but they aren't exactly useful for deciding how you should act in response, and they certainly aren't useful for determining how the government should act in response. Too much of the discussion around gun control seems to me to be based on emotion, and also I think that's true of almost every political discussion that's going on today. Well, I want to approach this kind of stuff from a rational perspective, so I am reclaiming reason in political discussions. Alright, now that that's out of the way, let's get into the shooting and the gun debate. So I think my take on this is quite unique, and I think there's the potential that a lot of people might agree with me, especially if anyone has been left feeling unsatisfied with both the liberal progressive position and the conservative one on this issue. So in my view, the liberal progressive side seems to think the proper course of action is gun control of some kind, particularly if that means banning certain weapons, like the AR-15, which of course was used in the Parkland shooting, or maybe even semi-automatic weapons in general. The conservatives, on the other hand, seem to have no solution. This is just a fact of life, they seem to say. If they do present a solution, maybe it's we should arm teachers, or put God back into schools, or look at regulating violent video games. Well, I think these general positions are wrong, and I think both of them miss the point entirely. But... I think the only way for me to tell you what I think is to establish a baseline of facts first. So for this show, I want to do a few things. First, I want to talk about what actually happened before, during, and after the shooting in Parkland. There is a lot that has been covered by the mainstream media, but I think they've done a terrible job of drawing conclusions from the facts. Second, I want to talk about what I think the rational conclusions are that can be drawn from this. Should we be banning guns? Should we be arming teachers? Can we do nothing? Is it a gun problem, a mental health problem, something else? Finally, I'll tell you the approach I think we should take on the issue of gun violence, one based on reason and individual rights. So let's get started. Okay, so the facts. Let's begin by talking a little bit about the shooter himself. I know some commentators think it's wrong to say his name or show his image, but I don't. If we want to learn something from this, then we have to identify exactly what happened. And part of that is trying to gain an understanding of the person who committed this atrocity. So the killer's name is Nicholas Cruz. He is 19 years old and he has a very troubled history. Also, he used an AR-15. Most people seem to want to talk about the AR-15, but I think that's beside the point. If we really want to come up with ideas for preventing this kind of thing in the future, I think we need to be discussing something else. I think discussing the specific gun, or the type of gun that was used, is almost irrelevant. 
Now, I realize that that comment might make some people pretty angry, but cooler heads must prevail here. This is a serious discussion. After all, it's prompted by an event that resulted in the deaths of children. Obviously, that is upsetting, and it should evoke strong emotions in you, but we need to make sure we're examining this event and its political implications rationally. And for that, we need to sort of look outside of ourselves and our own emotions and look at reality. We need to look at the facts, and then we can see what the facts imply. Now, I've done lots of research on this. I've literally spent hours looking over articles from all kinds of news sources. I found timelines from the Miami Herald, Naples News, and the Sun Sentinel that I think contain especially relevant facts about events that took place before, during, and after the shooting. You can find these timelines, as well as all of my other sources, on the show notes for this episode on my blog. The blog is Reclaiming Reason at WordPress, and the URL is www.zacklewis.wordpress.com. That's www.zacslouis.wordpress.com. That's my blog. Look for the show notes on that blog for this episode. Uh, They will have the same title as this episode has. Now, I'm not proposing to give you every single fact about what happened before, during, and after the shooting, but I am going to highlight the facts that I think are especially significant in relation to the broader gun violence, gun control discussion. I will start off by pointing out something I think is unique in this case. So I want you to take a moment, think back for a second to, I guess, the second most recent mass shooting that really captured the headlines and really dominated the news cycle, which, of course, is the Vegas shooting. Now, the Parkland shooting is dissimilar to that one in almost every way except for one crucial aspect. So in the Vegas case, as in many other mass shooting cases, almost everyone who knows the shooter all invariably seems to say the same thing. So they're shocked by this guy's actions. Nobody could have ever predicted this. This shooter was just a regular guy who didn't seem like he was dangerous. There was no way to know he'd just snap and go on a rampage. I can recall Stephen Paddock, the shooter in Vegas. I can recall his family, I think it was his brother, especially saying all kinds of stuff like that. Well, nobody is saying that kind of stuff about Nicholas Cruz. Why? Well, because it seems like pretty much everybody knew this kid had problems. Now, when I say everybody, I mean local police, the school administration, this kid's classmates, and even the FBI. Everybody knew that this kid had issues, but just what did they know and when did they know it? Well, let's talk about a few things. There were definitely early warning signs, tons of them. I'm going to go over just a few so you can kind of get an idea, and you can find the full sources which contain more detail than I can cover here on the show notes at the blog. So, to begin with, Cruz was an adopted child. His mother was a woman named Linda Cruz, who died of pneumonia on November 1st, 2017, which was shortly before Cruz went on his rampage. Linda Cruz apparently raised young Nicholas and his younger brother alone since 2004 when her husband died. Now, evidently, Cruz was a troubled youth and a very tough kid to raise, 
A story from Washington Post claims he used to murder animals as a kid. Let me just take a second and read you the first couple paragraphs of that article. Quote, The killing began with squirrels. As a fourth grader, Nicholas Cruz would try to bloody them with his pellet gun. Then he started going after chickens. By the time Cruz was a teenager, he was sneaking into his neighbor's yard across the street and trying to get his dogs to attack their potbelly pigs. One resident watched him take long sticks to rabbit holes, ramming them down as hard as possible to kill any creatures trapped inside, end quote. So, as early as the fourth grade, this kid was killing animals. Classic sign, from what I've read, of more serious problems to come. That same article states that some of Cruz's neighbors made complaints about him to law enforcement. Turns out a lot of complaints to law enforcement were made about him, and these are very telling. Let's examine a few of them. First, his mother. Uh, So according to an article from Naples Daily News, or Naples News Daily, Cruz allegedly hit his mother with a plastic vacuum hose, resulting in a police call. He also threw her against a wall because she took away his Xbox. And the article quotes friends and relatives saying Cruz was diagnosed with ADHD, OCD, and autism. And jumping a little bit of a gear here, Fox News quotes unnamed familial sources alleging that Cruz's mother, Linda, was seriously considering signing over her parental rights because Cruz's destructive behavior was too much for her to cope with. So from that article, quote, A family source on Thursday offered Fox News details about Cruz's family life, covering his childhood years until his adoptive mother's death. The source, who asked not to be named, said Cruz's mom, Linda Cruz, was terrified in the months before her death. The past few months before she died, she was scared, the source said. I think that's what killed her. End quote. Now, I realize this is from Fox News quoting unnamed sources, but I think it's totally plausible that this story and this unnamed source's characterization of Cruz is accurate. And I think you'll see that when we look at some more facts. Now, we've established so far that the now-deceased mother had trouble with this kid, and that the police had been called a few times. But I also said the FBI and the school administration all seemed to have a pretty good idea, too. And, of course, there were even more calls, apart from the mothers, to the police. But right now, I want to take a look at the school administration as an example. First and foremost, you should know that Cruz was shuffled around this school system More times than I can count, apparently all due to disciplinary violations of some sort. According to an article in the Miami Herald, teachers and other students claim that he kicked doors, cursed at teachers, fought with and threatened classmates, and once brought a backpack full of bullets to school. Apparently, in a period of just three years, Cruz was transferred six different times due to behavioral issues. He went from special alternative schools for children with emotional and behavioral disabilities to the traditional school and back again. Early reports said that Cruz was expelled from the school system for various disciplinary infractions. One specific infraction that might have led people to believe he was expelled was when he threatened to kill an ex-girlfriend of his and her new boyfriend. They had an interview about this with BuzzFeed, and you can find that article in the show notes. 
Now, these two, the ex-girlfriend and her new boyfriend, reported Cruz to the school administration and later saw him removed from the school, so they assumed he'd been expelled. They told BuzzFeed they weren't exactly sure why he'd been expelled. They didn't know if it was because of their specific complaint, you know, that he threatened to kill them, or if he got in trouble for other things, but they did think he was gone permanently. But according to that same Miami Herald article, he was never expelled. In fact, it wasn't even legal to expel him, even though he threatened to kill at least two other students. Now listen to this because I think it is very telling and I think it illustrates a huge problem in the education system. So according to the Miami Herald, under federal law, Nicholas Cruz could not be expelled because, of course, He had a right to a free and appropriate education at a public school near him, but his classmates also had a right to an education free of fear. The article says their rights often collided. So in what way did their rights collide? Well, listen to this quote from Broward School Board, and Broward is the county in which Parkland, Florida is located. So Broward School Board Chair... Nora Rupert says, quote, Every student in Broward County is entitled to a free and appropriate education. If there are certain areas where that can't be done, we need to make sure those students are given a place that is the least restrictive environment for their ability and they can thrive. You also want everybody to have safety, end quote. That was school board chair Nora Rupert. Another interesting quote from the same article, this time by Stephanie Langer, a Miami special education lawyer, says, quote, You can't just kick kids out of public schools because you are afraid of them or because they are hard to educate. It has to be a balance, and I think it's a really hard one, end quote. But can you kick kids out of public schools when they threaten to kill other kids? Guess not. So just think about that for a second. We want everybody to have a free and appropriate education no matter what, but at the same time, we also want everybody to have safety. Think about the implications of that. I will get to it a little later. Okay, to recap a little, so far we have anecdotal signs from family and friends, unnamed familial sources from Fox News, as well as actual threats against students reported to the school administration. Now let's get into more detail about complaints made to law enforcement, because I think we can draw some very interesting implications from these complaints. So the local law enforcement agency is, of course, the Broward Sheriff's Office. Now, according to the Broward Sheriff, Scott Israel, he admits that his office received 23 calls regarding Cruz's household over the years, 18 of which dealt directly with Cruz. He says he believes all complaints were handled correctly, but is unsure about two of them. Now, interestingly, BuzzFeed News disputes Israel's claim and says the BSO, the Broward Sheriff's Office, received 22 more complaints than Israel admitted, bringing the total to 45. Now, regardless of the number, Israel has been quoted as arguing that the police don't have the authority to respond to warnings about potential killers making non-specific threats. But it turns out specific threats were in fact made to 
Broward Sheriff's Office very specific threats, but according to an article in the Miami Herald, the Broward Sheriff's Office admits that a tipster called in November of 2017 to say Cruz could, quote, be a potential school shooter in the making, end quote. Weeks before, a relative called asking the Broward Sheriff's Office to seize Cruz's weapons because Cruz, quote, planned to shoot up the school, end quote. This information was allegedly forwarded to the school's resource officer, Scott Peterson, who, of course, is also a member of the Broward County Police Force, and this guy apparently did nothing with that information. Uh, and he later did nothing at the time of the shooting, but we'll get to that in a little bit. But finally, I want to get to the complaints made to the FBI. So the first FBI complaint happened on September 24th, 2017. A Mississippi bail bondsman, Ben Benite is his name, told the FBI that a commenter identifying himself as Nicholas Cruz had left a message on his YouTube channel that read, I'm going to be a professional school shooter. Benite apparently told an FBI office in Mississippi about this, but they failed to make a connection to Cruz in Florida, so nothing was done. Now the second FBI complaint, and this is the big one, happened on January 5th, 2018, a little over a month before the shooting took place. So according to the Miami Herald's timeline, a woman close to Cruz's family alerted the FBI that she was concerned about Cruz owning guns, posting on Instagram that he wanted to kill people, and that he may go shoot up a school. She said she was afraid like something like that was going to happen, according to an FBI transcript that was first reported to the Wall Street Journal. And this story was corroborated by a story from BuzzFeed, which offers a quote made by FBI Director Christopher Wray after the shooting. So I'd like to read that quote really quick. So this is FBI Director Christopher Wray, quote, On January 5th, 2018, a person close to Nicholas Cruz contacted the FBI's public access line to report concerns about him. The caller provided information about Cruz's gun ownership, desire to kill people, erratic behavior, and disturbing social media posts, as well as the potential of him conducting a school shooting. Under established protocols, the information provided by the caller should have been assessed as a potential threat to life. The information then should have been forwarded to the FBI Miami field office, where appropriate investigative steps would have been taken. We have determined that these protocols were not followed for the information received on the tip line on January 5th. The information was not provided to the Miami field office and no further investigation was conducted at that time. End quote. According to its own protocols, the FBI should have treated this tip as a potential threat to life and investigated it, but they did nothing. So just to recap now, We've seen concrete indications that Cruz was dangerous from every angle. The school knew, the police knew, the FBI knew, and nothing was done. Now, all of this happened prior to the shooting. Apparently, the school administration was too busy trying to balance rights to do anything. The Broward Sheriff's Office dismissed very specific complaints that it had received, and the FBI failed to follow its own protocols. So, failures here on every single level. Now next, I want to talk about what occurred on that fateful day, February 14th, 2018, Valentine's Day. 
I want to give you a rundown of the actual events that took place according to a timeline I found from the Sun Sentinel. So what follows next is what happened during the shooting according to this timeline. So Cruz apparently told the family he was staying with, and this was the family of a friend who took him in after his adoptive mother had died, that he wasn't going to school and that he does not attend school on Valentine's Day. So he stayed home. But of course, we know he did not stay home. So here is a breakdown of the timeline from the Sun Sentinel. You can find it in the show notes. 2.06 p.m. Uber picks up Cruz. 2.19 p.m. Uber drops Cruz off at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School campus just before the school day ends. 2.21 p.m. Cruz enters the east stairwell of Building 12 on campus with his AR-15 rifle in a black case. Between 2.21 to 2.28 p.m., according to the Sun Sentinel timeline, freshman Chris McKenna sees Cruz loading his rifle in a second-floor hallway of Building 12. According to the freshman, Cruz said, You better get out of here. Things are going to start getting messy. So McKenna fled. The shooting begins sometime during this point, and the school goes into what is called Code Red, where fire doors and hallways are locked, and students and staff are required to stay in their classrooms. But a fire alarm was engaged, and this overrode the Code Red. Now, McKenna, apparently the first student to see Cruz, finds assistant football coach Aaron Feiss and tells him about Cruz's gun. Feiss says he's going to check it out. Cruz starts shooting sometime at this point. Feiss runs down the hallway, pushing students to safety and using his body to shield a freshman girl. Cruz shoots and kills him. In an Algebra 2 classroom, room 1232, hearing gunshots and screams, math teacher Shanti... Viswanathan places paper over the classroom window so no one can see inside and tells her students to get down on the floor in the corner. These actions likely saved those students. In a first floor history class, social studies teacher Ivy Seamus hears gunshots, bullets pierce the classroom door, and hit six students, killing two 17-year-olds. In room 1216, Everyone drops to the floor at the sound of gunshots. English teacher Dara Hess calls 911. Geography teacher Scott Beagle unlocks the door to his classroom to let students inside. He is shot and killed. Peter Wong, age 15, holds open a door to let other students out of the building, and he is shot and killed. After the shooting, 2.28 p.m. Cruz exits building 12 and runs west toward the tennis courts, then heads south. 2.29, Cruz runs west with others who are fleeing the area. 2.50, Cruz arrives at a local Walmart, buys a drink from an interior subway, and leaves on foot. 3.36, lockdown at the school is lifted. 3.41, Cruz is detained by police and arrested. Horrific. Also horrific is what happened outside the school at the time this shooting was taking place. According to a CNN article, which you can find in the show notes, at least one, possibly several, Broward County police stood outside the school while Cruz killed 17 people. So according to that article, nearby Coral Springs police responded to the shooting crisis at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High. Some Coral Springs officers reported that not only had Scott Peterson, who, if you remember, was the school's resource officer, not only had Scott Peterson 
not entered the school, but three other Broward police who also responded to the incident were also standing outside doing nothing. Coral Springs City Manager Mike Goodrum allegedly confronted Broward County Sheriff Scott Israel at a vigil held for the dead students. Goodrum was apparently upset because while the Broward police had remained outside, injured students inside the school could have been bleeding out. Goodrum later kind of sort of downplayed the incident, but would not discuss the content of his conversation with Israel. Now, Israel, let's talk about him because he's an interesting guy. Consider this. I've got a Vox article here about a CNN interview of Israel by Jake Tapper. So this is a quote from this article on Vox. That's Vox, V-O-X, not Fox. Quote, when asked by Tapper whether he believes his office might have been able to prevent the shooting had they acted differently, the sheriff gave a puzzling response. Quote from Scott Israel, If its and buts were candy and nuts, O.J. Simpson would still be in the record books. He later added, We understand everything wasn't done perfectly, and in the office's investigation, they want to, quote, get it right, end quote. Also, during one of his many interviews, Israel, when asked whether he would step down, said of course not, because he had provided, quote, amazing leadership to the department over the years. Well, those 17 people are dead. The police department maybe could have got it right before this happened, but they didn't. And is Israel directly responsible for Scott Peterson and perhaps the three other officers not entering the school to take down the shooter? Well, no, not directly, but the buck has to stop somewhere, doesn't it? And is it, quote, amazing leadership when the Broward Sheriff's Office gets specific complaints that Cruz intends to be a school shooter and has weapons and does nothing? Doesn't sound like amazing leadership to me. But all right, now we have established the facts. Now that took a long time to present, but I think it's important to consider the context when we consider solutions. So next, I want to talk about the solutions. And for that, I'll be drawing on a few statistics and putting down a few arguments of my own. So lots of people are talking in the aftermath of the shooting about banning guns. Guns are the issue, according to some people, whether it's AR-15s or semi-automatics in general. According to a CNN article at a CNN town hall featuring Florida Senator Marco Rubio, applause erupted when he said to effectively ban assault weapons, quote, you would literally have to ban every semi-automatic weapon that's sold in America, end quote. Various polls, according to CNN, show that a slim majority of Americans may favor banning semi-automatic weapons. And this argument banning semi-automatic weapons or gun control in this sort of vein comes from the distinctly liberal progressive side. I'm going to pause a moment to give you a quick idea of what the conservatives are proposing. For that, let's look at the head of the conservative party, President Donald Trump. Trump, after a bizarre meeting where he seemed to agree with progressive liberal lawmakers that banning guns was a good idea, has pivoted to something incredibly stupid, in my opinion, violent video games, and possibly regulating those. I just want to say that I don't even want to get into any of these conservative solutions. They are nonsensical and I think unattractive to most people with brains. 
Instead, I want to focus a little bit on guns themselves, which is what most people right now are talking about. And this is where I'm going to draw a little bit on both philosophy and statistics. Now, maybe that sounds boring, but I guarantee you this, especially these statistics, are going to surprise you. But first, I think we need to establish this. So guns are merely tools. They are not human actors with the capacity to choose between alternatives. And as such, guns in themselves are amoral objects. Morality, which is what we're really discussing when we're talking about evils such as mass shootings, does not apply to guns. Morality only applies to choices people make when they pull the trigger. So I think everyone is familiar with the Second Amendment, which bestows upon each American the right to keep and bear arms. Well, there are two crucial questions that need to be addressed. One is, what kind of arms should Americans be allowed to keep and bear? And two, why should Americans be allowed to keep and bear arms? The answer, I think, to the first question is extremely complicated, but the answer to the second question is not. So to answer the second question, I'll remind you first that guns are tools. They are a specific kind of tool. However, they are a tool of violence. A gun is a lethal weapon, and it is used to kill people or animals in the case of hunting. And additionally, some people like to shoot guns for the sake of marksmanship in and of itself as like a sport. I think for the purpose of this discussion, I can dismiss hunting and marksmanship out of hand. These are secondary applications, I think, for guns, and if preserving the Second Amendment means a choice between allowing men to hunt or to shoot at targets in the gun range, or allowing psychopaths to murder children in school, then I don't think that's any choice at all. So when we're discussing gun control, we need to dismiss all the applications for which guns can be used, all the secondary applications, and focus on only one crucial application application, which is killing people. Now, for the purpose of this discussion, there are two kinds of situations where you might use a gun to kill someone. One situation is, like the Parkland shooting, murder. This is an evil application for guns. The second situation is, I would argue, self-defense, and this is the only application that I think is a moral use of a gun. I've seen a lot of vitriol and sarcasm from the progressive liberals on this point. You know the kind of stuff, those uh, stupid memes on Facebook that say things like, No one is talking about taking away all of your guns, Crystal. You can still use your pink camo handgun to take pot shots at empty beer bottles in your backyard every weekend. Well, I would argue the reason that some people are so passionate about keeping their guns is because they are passionate about self-defense. And the idea that people just want to use their guns for target practice or for hunting and that they're worried about them being taken away and them not being able to perform those activities anymore is just ridiculous. It's about self-defense. We each have the right to act violently in self-defense. Essentially, this is what the Second Amendment was designed to protect, the right to self-defense. Now, we have the right to self-defense because we have the right to life. And I want to make it very clear what I mean when I'm talking about rights, because I don't think most people have a clear concept of what a right is. So you can think of a right as a social construct, as an application of morality, which is a branch of philosophy, to a social context. 
Morality is the science that defines and prescribes a code of values which guide man's actions. You would need morality, for example, if you were trying to survive alone on a desert island. Morality would provide you with a philosophical framework to choose between alternative actions and take the action that is good for you. However, in the context of society, you need rights. Rights, in my view, are derived from your nature as a rational being. Reason, as I defined earlier in the show, is the faculty that integrates into concepts the material provided by the senses. Man is a conceptual being whose primary tool of survival is his faculty of reason, or, in other words, his ability to think. It is from this specific nature of man that rights are derived. Now, that's a lot of philosophical jargon, so to put it concretely... The right to life is the right to engage in a process of self-generated, self-sustaining action. That is what life is for a human being. Note that this right sanctions your right to act in pursuit of maintaining and living your life, but it forbids others from impeding your effort. And how can they do that? How can the right to life be violated? Obviously by its negation, death, murder. All proper, rationally defined rights are like this. I'll go over another example that you should be familiar with um, because I want you to understand me. I want to make sure you understand what I mean when I'm talking about rights. So take now the right to liberty. Since life is a process of self-generated, self-sustaining action, and since men are rational beings who must think and discover knowledge that will enable them to survive and to thrive... Man must be free to both think and to act on his conclusions. So the right to liberty means the right to think and the right to act on your conclusions, whether they are rational or irrational, self-interested or self-destructive. And, again, the right imposes only a negative prescription on others. They cannot use physical violence or fraudulent coercion to force you to act against your own judgment or to attempt to stop you from expressing your conclusions, whether they are rational or irrational, good or bad. A proper system of rights is a system which identifies man's nature as a rational being and is designed to allow man to exist and act as a rational being in the context of society. The enemy of rights is physical force or violence. The government is an institution which holds a legal monopoly on the use of physical force in society. Its job is to enforce a ban of physical force from all social relationships. The government's job is to protect its citizens by exercising its legal monopoly on the use of physical force only in retaliation to those who initiate physical force against others. In other words, if a criminal hurts you or tries to hurt you, the government acts on behalf of yourself, your right to self-defense and employs force against the criminal and incarcerates him or punishes him in some way. Now, of course, it is impossible for the government to instantly respond to every instance where a criminal initiates force against someone. So people have a right to respond to initiations of force against them in self-defense. They have a moral right to do this, although the way the right to self-defense is defined in actual law, I think, is sometimes totally atrocious, but that's a different discussion. So people have the right to self-defense, and I would argue guns are useful and guns are appropriate tools 
that you might employ for the purpose of self-defense. That is why we have the Second Amendment, to make sure that American citizens have the ability to act in their own self-defense when necessary. All of the nonsense about hunting and shooting ranges is totally irrelevant. What is crucial to this discussion of guns is the issue of self-defense. Now, I know what's coming next. Almost everybody agrees that people have a right to self-defense, sure. But why does anyone need a gun for self-defense? Or even, why does anyone need a semi-automatic gun for self-defense? Certainly those guns are only good for offensive use, for, you know, mowing down innocent people. And I've also heard the idea put forth that guns aren't actually a good tool for self-defense. There are better alternatives, I guess. I'm not sure what they are. Maybe mace, pepper spray? I don't know. Anyway, my position is people have the right to own guns because they have the right to self-defense. And also, I think it's important to mention that people do, in fact, use guns for self-defense all the time. Now, this may shock you, and I'll admit it surprised me. So, way back in January of 2013... Then-President Barack Obama issued a series of executive orders as part of his Now is Time plan, the goal of which was to find a way to reduce or eliminate gun violence in America, and to study guns and gun violence in general. As part of that plan, an incredible study was done. The study is called Priorities for Research to Reduce the Threat of Firearm-Related Violence. It was published by the Committee on Priorities for Public Health Research Agenda to Reduce the Threat of Firearm-Related Violence. The report was approved by the Governing Board of the National Research Council, which is a privately organized body whose members are drawn from the National Academy of Sciences, the National Academy of Engineering, the Institute of Medicine, and the study was funded by awards from both the National Academy of Sciences and the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, which is the CDC, and the CDC Foundation. So for the rest of this discussion, I'm going to give you some findings from this study. You can find a link to it in the show notes on my blog. Now, keep in mind, I've done a small analysis of this study. It is a huge study. You're welcome to look at it yourself. I think it is a good study based on what I've seen from the methodology. And by the way, it was commissioned, as I said, I just want to remind you of this, as part of President Barack Obama's executive order to study gun violence. So you would think if this study was in any way biased, it would be slanted more towards the gun control wing of the liberal progressive party. So, anyway, let's, let's get to the actual details of the survey. So, it turns out that people do, in fact, use guns for self-defense, and apparently they do it all the time. So, let me read you part of the section on the study about the defensive use of firearms. Quote, Defensive use of guns by crime victims is a common occurrence, although the exact number remains disputed. Almost all national survey estimates indicate that defensive gun uses by victims are at least as common as offensive uses by criminals, with estimates of annual uses ranging from about 500,000 to more than 3 million in the context of about 300,000 violent crimes involving 
firearms in 2008. On the other hand, some scholars point to a radically lower estimate of only 108,000 annual defensive uses based on the National Crime Victimization Survey. The variation in these numbers remains a controversy in the field. End quote. So, defensive use of guns is common, although the exact number of instances is disputed. Almost all national survey estimates indicate that defensive use of guns by victims are at least as common as the offensive uses by criminals. This part, I think, is especially significant if we look at the offensive uses of weapons in general. So we'll look at that in a little bit. But moving on with the idea of defensive uses of guns, another quote from the survey, quote, a different issue is whether defensive uses of guns, however numerous or rare they may be, are effective in preventing injury to the gun-wielding crime victim. Studies that directly assessed the effect of actual defensive gun uses, that is, incidents in which a gun was used by the crime victim in the sense of attacking or threatening an offender, have found consistently lower injury rates among gun-using crime victims compared with victims who used other self-protective strategies, end quote. So defensive uses of guns, regardless of whether they occur a lot, um, are effective in preventing injury to the gun-wielding victim of violent crime. And note how it says studies that directly assess the effect of defensive uses of guns, which the study defines as incidents in which a gun was used by the crime victim in the sense of attacking or threatening an offender, have found consistently lower injury rates among gun-using crime victims compared to victims who used other self-protective strategies. So basically, if a criminal violently attacks you and you use a gun in defense, and by use, it could mean all kinds of things. You don't even necessarily have to shoot the criminal, maybe just pull it out and point it at the criminal. The chance that you'll be injured by the violence the criminal intends to inflict on you is dramatically lowered. Now, the study says that the effectiveness of defensive tactics is likely to vary across types of victims, types of offenders, circumstances. Yes, of course. Of course it is. Moving on, though. Here's where the study sort of gets critical about the defensive use of guns. So, quote, even when defensive use of guns is effective in averting death or injury for the gun user in cases of crime, it is still possible that keeping a gun in the home or carrying a gun in public, concealed or open carry, may have a different net effect on the rate of injury. For example, if gun ownership raises the risk of suicide, homicide, or the use of weapons by those who invade the homes of gun owners, this could cancel or outweigh the beneficial effects of defensive gun use. So I think this is interesting because here we're saying even if defensive use of guns is effective in averting death or injury for the gun user in cases of crime, owning a gun may have a different effect on the rate of injury. And the idea that gun ownership might increase the risk of suicide, the idea that that would cancel or outweigh the beneficial effects of defensive gun use is particularly interesting, and I think it displays a little bit of bias that might be 
inherent in this study bias towards favoring gun control. This part of the study further says that some studies were published about whether other effects of gun ownership outweigh the beneficial effects of defensive gun use, but those studies that purported to study whether other effects of gun ownership outweigh the beneficial effects of defensive gun use were inconclusive, and I submit that possibly they were inconclusive because they're comparing two things which aren't alike in kind. For example, let's take suicide, which the study itself uses as an example. Now, suicide we can define as the volitional, that is voluntary, self-inflicted injury which causes death. Now that is very different from using a gun to defend yourself from violence inflicted on you by another individual who wishes to cause you harm. The fact that some people might be more likely to choose a gun to kill themselves does not, to my mind, in any way outweigh or cancel out the benefit of an individual who values his life using a gun to defend it. So, I think... The question shouldn't be framed as, if people are dying by gun violence all the time, is that really a price we're willing to pay to allow people to keep guns? I would ask, if good, law-abiding citizens use guns to defend themselves against people who want to harm them or kill them, are we willing to take away their guns? But if we're talking about taking away guns, even if we did try to take away everyone's guns, could we? Well, according to this CDC-sponsored study, we don't even know how many guns there are in the United States. Now, the study says, quote, It is difficult to determine the exact number and distribution of guns currently in homes and communities due to lack of data. Between 1986 and 2010, the domestic production of firearms increased by 79%, Firearm exports increased by 11%, and firearm imports increased by 305%. A December 2012 poll found that 43% of those surveyed reporting having a gun in the home. So, even if we wanted to take away all guns, there would be no way that I can think of to verify that we had succeeded. And that leaves open the question of how would we do it? How would we do it in such a way that ensured both criminals and law-abiding citizens would relinquish their firearms? I mean, given the gun culture in America, I don't think there's any way to do that. But also, I'm not sure there's even a reason to suppose that taking away all guns would be a good idea. Now let's take a little bit longer look at some more statistics, this time on the violent offensive use of firearms. So in this section, the study goes to great length to define the types of firearm violence when providing stats. Essentially, it defines two types of firearm violence, and those are fatal, which includes suicides, homicides, unintentional fatalities, and non-fatal, which includes unintentional and intentional injuries, threats, and the defensive use of guns. So, suicides to begin with. Suicides, apparently, significantly outnumber homicides across all age groups, though they receive significantly less media attention than homicides. Suicides, for example, accounted for 60% of all firearm deaths in the United States of America in 2009. In 2010, suicide was the leading cause of death, 
among individuals in the United States over the age of 10. Now, think about that for a second. Suicide is the leading cause of death for individuals in the United States over the age of 10. That, I think, has some very interesting implications. And I also have some more statistics on that. So, another disturbing and, I think, crucial statistic. Suicide was the third leading cause of death for individuals between the ages of 15 and 19 in 2009. In 2015, suicide was the second leading cause of death in a similar but a little bit wider age bracket, 15 to 24. And homicide was the third cause of death. First cause of death was unintentional injury of some sort, and this is from a little bit of a different survey. This is from another CDC survey about injuries. You can find a link to it in the show notes. It's an easy-to-read table. Moving on, in 2010, firearms were used in the majority of 38,364 suicide deaths in the United States. However, According to this survey, individuals also use a wide variety of other lethal measures for committing suicide, such as hanging, suffocation, jumping from great heights. Firearms and suffocation have a similar mortality rate when used as methods for committing suicide. Between 2005 and 2009, 83 out of 100 suicide attempts by firearm ended in death. In that same period, 80 out of 100 suicide attempts by suffocation ended in death. So I think it is therefore total nonsense to say that banning firearms would in any way reduce the number of suicides. Other methods are just as effective and, I would argue, easier to employ than the use of firearms because in order to obtain a firearm, you do have to go through a legal process, get a background check, and all that. But now I want to change gears a little bit. I want to talk about homicides. So the survey cites the FBI's Uniform Crime Report, which, according to that, 46,313 people were murdered in incidents involving firearms between 2007 and 2011. That's a four-year period. Keep in mind that in 2010 alone, a one-year period, there were 38,364 deaths by suicide. So... Take that number of homicides, 46,313 over a four-year period, and divide it by four, you get an average of 11,578.25 deaths per year. So the number of deaths by gun-related homicide is significantly lower than the deaths uh, by suicide. Also, during the period of 2007 through 2011, firearms accounted for twice as many murders as all other weapons combined but approximately 3% of firearm-related assaults known to police, which represent only a portion of the firearm-related assaults that actually occur, are fatal. So that's a little bit of an interesting stat. So another interesting stat that I don't think people are aware of, handguns account for the vast majority of firearm-related homicides. In 2011, handguns accounted for 72.5% of the firearms used in murder and non-negligent, that is purposeful, manslaughter incidents. Rifles and shotguns are less frequently used to commit homicide, though they are, quote, more lethal, end quote, than handguns. 
And remember the statistic on the defensive uses of guns? Somewhere between 108,000 and 3 million instances annually. Far more, whether you take the low or the high number, far more instances than instances of these offensive violent uses of guns. And keep in mind, I just want to remind you again, in case you forgot, this study only exists as part of President Barack Obama's directive to study gun violence and suggests, in fact, people use guns more in self-defense than to commit crimes. But, of course, the elephant in the room is mass shootings. Now, let's look at the stats on those. The study actually defines mass shootings as a subcategory of homicides because, relative to the total number of homicides, they are actually pretty rare. Now, from the study, according to the Congressional Research Service, public mass shootings have claimed 547 lives and led to an additional 476 injured victims since 1983. Now, I think this is the only number for mass shootings given in this survey, the CDC one, and the number depends on how you define mass shootings. As far as I know, the most common definition of a mass shooting is an instance when four or more people are killed in a single shooting incident. The number obviously increases or decreases depending on the minimum you choose. Still, to me, this seems like a low number. So I looked to see if I could find a higher number, and I did. So if you take a report commissioned by the Congressional Research Service, I found one entitled Mass Murder with Firearms, Incidents and Victims, 1999 to 2013, published on July 30th, 2015, so a couple years after this CDC survey was published, the numbers uh, vary. This survey also defines mass shootings as four or more killings in a single incident. In this report, analyzing a period between 1999 and 2013, indicates that 317 mass shootings took place, resulting in 1,554 murdered victims and 441 wounded victims. The report indicates, and this I think is very interesting, the report indicates that average instances of mass shootings have gone up over the decades. So I'll quickly run through that list. It covers a period of about four decades. So there was 1.1 incident per year in the 1970s, with an average of 5.5 victims killed and an average of two victims wounded. Next decade, 1980s, 2.7 incidents on average per year, 6.1 victims killed, 5.3 wounded. Next decade, 1990s, jumps up to 4.0 incidents on average per year, 5.6 victims murdered, 5.5 wounded. Next decade, the 2000s, the average jumps up a tiny little bit, 4.1 incidents on average. During the 2000s, 6.4 victims killed, 4.0 wounded. And then in the 2010s, 4.5 incidents during the 2010s, 7.4 killed, 6.3 wounded, and of course we're still in the 2010s, so that number could, I suppose, theoretically rise. And given the mass shootings that occurred after this survey was conducted in 2015, such as the Vegas one that I mentioned earlier, and this Parkland one, I suppose the number would rise. So the number of mass shootings has generally been rising over the last 40 years, and we appear, according to this survey, to be at the peak time. And, by the way, this is crucial, we have stricter gun laws now than we did in the 70s and 80s, when fewer mass shootings took place. For example, 
Between 1990 and 2004, remember a period in which the number of instances of mass shootings dramatically rose, almost by half. The following laws were passed and implemented. So, Gun-Free School Zones Act in 1990 prohibits unauthorized individuals from knowingly possessing a firearm at a place that the individual knows or has reasonable cause to believe is a school zone. 1993, Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act requires background checks on most firearm purchasers, depending on seller and venue. And I want to pause right there because that part about the depending on seller and venue trips a lot of people up. I just want to say, if you attempt to buy a gun from a gun retailer, you will be subject to a federal background check. That's how it works. There is no loophole for getting around it. Even uh, the supposed gun show loophole, that is total fabrication, completely debunked. If you attempt to purchase a gun from a gun retailer, then you will be subject to a background check. However, if you attempt to purchase a gun from a third party, a private seller, that is not always the case. Anyway, a little bit of a digression there, moving on to the big law. The Federal Assault Weapons Ban. This was passed in 1994, and it banned semi-automatic weapons that looked like assault weapons and had large-capacity ammunition feeding devices. The law expired in 2004. And yet, I want to point out, during the 1990s and the 2000s, when these strict gun laws were put in place, the instances of mass shootings were higher. So, I don't think anyone can claim that the data supports that stricter gun laws prevent mass shootings. Clearly, they don't. Or at the very least, it seems that they do not. So the data, I think, suggests that this issue is far more complicated than most people seem to believe or want to acknowledge. I think, according to my views on ethics and the statistics contained in this study, people do and should have the right to use weapons for the purpose of self-defense. And if you're going to argue that we shouldn't have weapons and that the government is going to take care of us and act on our behalf in our self-defense anytime we're in danger, I'll tie in something from earlier, something that should be obvious to you and something you should have realized from the events that occurred before, during, and after the Parkland shooting. The government in that instance failed to protect those 17 people on every level imaginable. The school administration, the public government-controlled school administration, completely failed their students. The local police failed. The FBI failed. All of them failed. And people are supposed to totally relinquish their guns and trust the government? I don't think so. If you are interested in making the argument that we should ban guns from society, this is not the case to cite, especially, especially when, as I said, the only valid reason to possess a firearm, the only one that really counts in this discussion, is possessing a firearm for the purpose of defending yourself, your values, your family, other innocent people. Now, as for what kind of weapons people should have the right to keep and use for the purpose of self-defense, that is an extremely difficult question. I don't really have an answer on it. 
That, I think, is for the philosophers of law to work out. I'm not sure where the line is. Lethal weapons are used for killing, of course, and you do not have the right to kill people. But you do have the right to defend your own life, which sometimes may mean killing someone. The standard, I think, has to be something along the lines of distinguishing which kind of weapon is only objectively appropriate in the context of a military setting, that is, one where a number of combatants need to employ a large amount of firepower to destroy a large force of enemy combatants who may be well-armed as well, and another broad class of weapons, the kind of weapon which is only objectively appropriate in the context of personal self-defense. That is, where one person, or maybe two, or a couple more, are using a firearm to protect themselves and possibly their family or other innocent bystanders from force initiated by a much smaller party than an enemy combatant force. So a single criminal with a lethal weapon, maybe a small number of criminals. This, I think, is an incredibly difficult line to define, and I will admit I am not sure what the answer is, but I am sure on one thing. The line is not, as some have suggested, semi-automatic weapons. So to understand why, I want to give you what the definition of a semi-automatic firearm is, because I think most people particularly the ones calling for more gun control or total gun bans, are ignorant on this. And in fact, I have a friend who has more liberal progressive political views, and I brought up the definition or the distinction between semi-automatic weapons and fully automatic weapons to her, and she said to her it sounded like a bunch of wordplay that really didn't matter, but it is not wordplay. These definitions correspond to actual things in reality, so I want to give you the definitions. A semi-automatic weapon is virtually every gun owned by a private citizen in the United States at this time. Semi-automatic simply means you pull the trigger one time and one bullet comes out. Now you can pull the trigger in succession very quickly and as a consequence bullets will release more quickly in succession, but semi-automatic is one trigger pull shoots one bullet. That is virtually every single handgun out there And even old dual-action revolvers function as semi-automatics because you pull the trigger once, the thing spins, and another bullet is lined up to be fired. Okay, so semi-automatic weapon, every, every handgun, pretty much virtually every weapon in the United States right now owned by private citizens. Now, fully automatic weapons, which are already effectively banned, and I think should be banned, Fully automatic means the gun keeps shooting as long as the trigger is depressed and there are bullets in the magazine. So on a fully automatic weapon, you can hold the trigger down and the bullets will keep flying until there aren't any left. Fully automatic weapons, to my mind, are only objectively appropriate in the context of military activity. They're made to put down as much fire as possible, as quickly as possible, so that you can fire on a number of enemies and so that your chances of hitting one of those enemies are increased because you're firing a lot of bullets at a very quick rate of fire. So, semi-automatics. A lot of people are asking, why does anybody need a semi-automatic? Well, I don't know about you, but if I ever have to defend myself with a gun, I don't want my life to hang on one bullet. I want to be able to get off a few of them to increase my chances because I'm not that great of a shot, you're not that great of a shot. If you ever have to use a gun to defend yourself, you're probably going to be scared, 
nervous. You're probably not going to be as accurate as you are just firing off rounds down the shooting range. You need more than one bullet in order to increase your chances of getting through the ordeal alive. So now we've gone on about this for a long time, so I do want to wrap it up here. But before I do, I want to give you an indication of what I think the actual problem is. I've talked a lot now about guns, statistics, and actual practical concrete things. I want to move past that a little bit, and I want to talk about ideas. Recall, if you will, the statistic that said suicide is the second or third leading cause of death in the youth population, and consider the homicide statistics, which just fall a little bit short of the suicide statistics and being a leading cause of death of the youth population. So I ask you, could it be that it is not a gun problem, but an education problem? Could it be that not only are our schools failing to protect our children from psychopaths like Nicholas Cruz, but they are also failing to teach them how to deal with their emotions, given the high rate of suicide among young people? That, I think, is a question that is especially relevant to this discussion, and I want to end by talking about an essay by C. Bradley Thompson entitled Our Killing Schools, Public Schools, Intellectual, and Moral Wastelands that Destroy America's Youth. It is difficult to find this essay because it was published in a number of scholarly journals and you have to pay for those, but I did manage to find a link to it and you can access it on the show notes. So in his essay, Thompson makes the following arguments, and I think this, this line of argument is really what is at the heart of what is causing all of this gun violence, particularly among the youth. So, the explanation for these mass shootings, particularly the ones taking place in schools, Thompson, and I agree with him, thinks might be that the education establishment is profoundly failing children and destroying their capacity to think rationally. This is a quote from Thompson's essay. Quote, As a college professor, I meet hundreds of current and recently graduated high school students every year. I am struck by four factors. First, students don't believe in very much and are unwilling to make moral judgments. Second, they have artificially inflated opinions of themselves and are unwilling to tolerate criticism. Third, they are poorly educated. And finally, they hated their high school experience. The result is an explosive mixture of nihilism, narcissism, ignorance, and resentment, end quote. Thompson argues that the moral ethos of our education system is dominated by moral relativism. Quote, the one thing that a college professor can expect from new students is that they do not believe in moral absolutes. They are unwilling to judge morally the opinions or actions of others, even if they disagree with them. Beginning in elementary school, students are taught that all lifestyles are equal and that they should not discriminate between them. What this means, most of all, is do your own thing and don't judge me, end quote. Another issue related to moral relativism is the dogma being incorporated into the curriculum that children should constantly be praised. Quote, positive reinforcement for deeds well done has been transformed by the education establishment into indiscriminate praise so that children will 
feel good about themselves regardless of whether their ideas or actions are praiseworthy or not. The problem with this binge in juvenile self-love is that children with unjustifiably high opinions of themselves are becoming aggressive and even violent when confronted with criticism or teasing, end quote. Now, Thompson argues that, apart from these concretes, the problem is deeply rooted in the dominant philosophy of our education system, and that is progressive education. Thompson defines progressive education as a rejection of traditional schooling, which emphasizes learning a body of pre-established information by replacing it with a child-centered approach that, quote, emphasizes a child's self-expression and spontaneous impulses. Progressivism holds that children do not learn by thinking, but rather by feeling and doing. Teachers should not be authoritarian, and they should always praise children for their unique and inventive answers, regardless of whether they are right or wrong. Knowledge, example, the rules of grammar and mathematics, and the facts of science and history is explicitly not the goal of progressive education. End quote. And another quote. When I talk to high school students, they tell me, virtually to a person, the same thing, that high school is boring and unchallenging. It's not that they don't want to learn or that they find subjects such as algebra or history intrinsically boring. In fact, it's quite the opposite. When I press a little deeper, I learn that for most students, the problem is that they have teachers who aren't particularly good at what they do. The teachers don't seem to know their subjects very well, and they don't have a passion for teaching. Dissuaded from making moral distinctions, fed a daily diet of an I'm okay, you're okay philosophy, denied logic, knowledge, and truth, and driven by unknown fears and anxieties, today's young people are left with nothing but their untutored feelings and emotions as their guides through the trials and tribulations of adolescence. Thus, we should not be surprised when they respond with outbursts of rage and acts of violence when things don't go their way. End quote. The education establishment, according to Thompson's essay, has responded to this crisis by turning our schools into something more akin to prisons than places of learning. Barbed wire, metal detectors, identification cards, closed-circuit television monitors, and guards are common features of today's schools. Worse yet, the school system treats our young people in the same way that the penal system treats its prison population— a good many schools in this country are simply providing daycare for teenagers, and in the worst schools, they are providing incarceration. Class time is more like a prison lockup. If Americans want to stop schoolyard violence and address the social pathologies that increasingly afflict our young, if they want to turn our schools into serious places of learning, they should abandon their deadly experiment in progressive education and restore a curriculum that emphasizes reason over emotions, knowledge over feelings, moral judgments over moral agnosticism, and self-control over self-expression. This essay, I think, nails the issue right on the head. As I said, I am not sure what the solution to this gun violence is, but I think the ideas presented in Thompson's essay are a lead to the solution. As I said earlier, I think too much of our political discourse and our cultural discourse is dominated by emotion, and that is not thinking. And I think that perhaps our progressive education system in America is not teaching children to think, it's teaching them to emote, and to use emotions as a method of cognition. That, I think, is a recipe for disaster, and that 
is what I think we should be thinking about. I think that issue is the primary. I think guns are a secondary issue. I think the real issue is the problems with education, and I think you can see those problems manifest themselves in the suicide rates among young people and now in the rising homicide rates. Well, all right, I think we've gone on long enough now. I think I've given you plenty to think about on this issue. I may, in the future, do a follow-up episode on the topic of gun violence if I get a good response to this episode. But before I go, I just want to say a couple of things. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with anyone you think might be interested. I think I covered a lot of information that a lot of people might not know and that a lot of people might benefit from knowing. I plan to do more podcasts on a weekly or bi-weekly basis, depending on how complicated the subject matter is. This particular episode, this first episode, took me so long to do that I think for a while I am just going to cover some simpler topics that require less research. And also, I would eventually like to do live shows on Blog Talk Radio, but... With the free version, the service is extremely limited. So if you guys are interested in hearing live shows, or if you find value in what I do, please consider contributing to my Patreon page. That is www.patreon.com slash Zach S. Lewis, Z-A-C-S-L-O-U-I-S. Please consider contributing. I will use that money, if I get enough of it, to pay for a monthly subscription to Blog Talk Radio, and I will do more of these shows live if there's any interest in that, and I will answer questions. I'll take calls, and we can discuss all kinds of things, gun control, philosophy, whatever. So with that, I think I'll end here. Thank you for listening. I hope to see you next time.